to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro Man. You're a little bit late coming in there. I think he was he had his microphone on mute. Mark is taking after me, I think. It is the week ending 9th of November 2018, and this is the Vet Gurus, Brendan, and I'm here with Mark. Although, Mark, you are on location, aren't you? Tell us where you are this week. I have had the good fortune to come to the sunny Gold Coast. The sunny Gold Coast and Mark, well, once Mr. Intro finishes his little introduction, there we go, um, we can hear what you're saying. Um, So what are you doing up in the Gold Coast, Mark? Well, I've been invited to play on one of the the, uh, basketball teams that are uh, are competing in the Masters games at the, um, uh, what are they called? Pan Pacific, that's it, the Pan Pacific Masters games. Um, And um, yeah, I'm having a great time, Brendan. You're a man of many talents, Mark, and tell me how many three-pointers have you shot so far this event? Not a single one yet, Brendan, not a single one. How many two-pointers have you shot? Well, I have managed to get about, oh, what was it, I was counting them for this express purpose, three in the three games, and um, but more, much, much more importantly, I haven't missed yet. Fantastic. And you did tell me off-air that you... Your team is three from three. You have won the first three games. So how many more games do you need to win in order to end up with a trophy marker? It doesn't work that way. Is it just a round robin? I know it's highly competitive, as as competitive as you can get when you're in the uh, uh, 50-plus Division Two competition. Um, There is a, a synthetic gold medal at the end, um, and there's another five games, Brendan. I, I don't know that my knees will hold up for the entire time. Uh, and is so is there final, or is it just an aggregate winner no, overall no, of Hammond? Ha- round robin followed by the, the you know, playoffs. Excellent. Well, good luck, and, yeah, keep ice in that knee, Mark, if it plays <laughs> Keep ice in that knee. So a shout-out to all our, our new listeners and our new subscribers. I think we have a few few more this week, Mark, and part of it is because we've been getting word out there and I was, ooh, I was lucky enough to – sorry, my phone was ringing. I don't know whether our, our – um, you could hear that, Mark, um, but I heard my phone ringing in my ear. Did you hear that? Couldn't hear a thing. Are you there? Yep, I'm. Can can you hear me? You are there. You are, yes, I can hear you. It's great to be um to record like this without any editing, Mark. You know, you can you can tell that we do this. Um, we have done it for more than fifty episodes, and we're still pretty hopeless at it, aren't we, Mark? Yes. So my phone was trying to ring, and my little Apple Watch was ringing, and it was um. Everything was going off, Mark, here. So anyway, where was I? Yes, so new listeners, hello to all our new subscribers. And I did uh, spend a night at RSPCA here in Melbourne last week and helped give a little presentation there on treating snakes. So emergency care of snakes, Mark, and we had a really good turnout of about 60-plus 
vets are there and a few nurses. Hello to the nurses there, mainly from the RSPCA. And um, I did give a little plug for the podcast, so we might have a few listeners from the people who turned up there. So and thank that- you for listening, and I hope um, you're not turned off from my little um, two-minute um, disorientation I just had there, mate. And you're going to I'm, say something? I was going to say, if I'm not mistaken, you um, – you uh, there was a complimentary presentation. You did the presentation on um, emergency treatment of snakes, but there was a complimentary presentation. If is am I correct? Yes, the treatment of snake bite. Um, so I think that fits in quite well. So I spoke about how to treat the snakes that get injured or um, the approach to treating the doing the reptile consultation or the snake consultation a little bit on emergency care of snakes and then the second presenter was yeah how to treat snake bite in dogs and cats so it um i think it worked quite well and um yeah worked kylie i think it was um we um from melbourne university um, emergency veterinarian um fantastic presentation and some really interesting stuff mark i don't know whether you treat many snake bites up your way i certainly don't these days i can't remember the last snake bite i treated even though we do have have um dogs and cats being bitten by snakes in my area because i don't have any anti-venom on hand so i tend to handball them to the other clinics around near us mark um but yeah really interesting about the um statistics with snake bite in in dogs and cats and the current thoughts about pre-medication or whether you should do it and um bottom line with that i think mark is that um it's all a little bit iffy about whether or not it's worthwhile pre-medicating um, animals before giving the anti-venom um i think one of the key takeaways was try and give the anti-venom fairly slowly um but if they are going to have a signs of an anaphylactic response then it's a balance between you need to get that antivenom into that animal if it's going to die regardless you need to get the antivenom in and you may need to give some of the um, treatment to help um, if it does go into anaphylaxis but um, yeah I, I remember back in the day when I did treat a fair number of snake bite it, it was the go in those days, Mark, to pre-med them with a bit of a steroid and pre-med them with a bit of an antihistamine. I think they just decide to put everything on board. Do you pre-med any of them, Mark? I do tend to. Um, I know that the current evidence is a little bit equivocal, um, but I think it's one of those difficult areas where, um, you know, who's going to do the the appropriate research to conclusively say what works best. There's gonna. This is one of those things that there's never going to be a series of tests with artificial envenomation in animals to see what works best. You've just got to infer. And and uh, in our experience, uh, when we do pre-medicate them, we um, we don't get um, anaphylactic reactions. And when those few cases that we give. Um, where we don't pre-medicate them, then um, then there definitely seems to be a tendency in those cases to have more reaction. I know it's a small case series in our hospital, um, but um, but at this stage we find it still useful to um, give them the corticosteroid and antihistamine before we whack that antivenom in, and we get deliver it slowly, as you said. Interestingly enough, we've used up seven vials in the last couple of weeks, Brendan, and it's been a little bit of a... a uh, a um, large number of serpents out in the Hunter Valley over the last few weeks. So I encourage everyone to be careful as they're walking their dog in the in the heat. 
Yes, I think they're out and about, Mark. And yeah, that I think part of the difficulty we're dealing with it is exactly as you say. It's trying to get those cases under under your belt with with the studies and. Um, then trying to determine what works best for them. And Kylie was fantastic with the stats that she has. Do you do you participate in the, oh, gee, I've forgotten what it's called, the, um, the snake map um, program um, and the listing of the um, snake bites around Australia? I don't think we are. I think we, I can't remember. I was aware of it and maybe we haven't um, filled out our um, forms completely. Maybe we've subscribed and and not been um, active participants, I'm embarrassed to admit. But um, but those sorts of things are exactly what we need to foster in private practice. There's a huge amount of information that private practitioners harvest in, from their cases, and if there's ways that we can consolidate that into um, you know large, large numbers, then, then that provides an excellent database to make evidence-based decisions about what we do, Brenda. And I think... You've embarrassed me into making sure that I get on to that snake map um, plan and, and enter the data for our cases over the last few weeks. Yeah, and I think one of the other good things about that snake map is not only looking at where those snakes are, but just a bit of a breakdown of 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 the treatments of them within those regions. And they do all this geolocation bits and pieces with it to eventually and i think they had something like 150 cases on the books there and they're starting to get some really good info about um not just what snakes are in particular areas but but survivability and she had a funny little chart about which um which breeds of dogs were being bitten mark and um have a bit of a guess about the two main breeds that um that were on the list there well i wouldn't um I wouldn't. I don't think I'd be surprised if you told me that. Um, you know, fox terriers, Jack Russell terriers—they're probably um, the ones Absolutely. that see most commonly. Um, I don't. The, the um, and Staffies. Yeah. Staffies was the other one. Staffie was number one by far. I think, and it was Jack Russell's number two, if I remember correctly. And I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, I was paying attention at that stage. I was going to say I wasn't nodding off there, but Kylie was a fantastic presenter and um, I think more people were nodding off in my presentation than Kylie's, that's for sure, because I saw everybody madly scribbling down every and hanging off every word she had, whereas they didn't even laugh at half of my jokes, Mark, but that's pretty typical. I reckon if you get a 50% batting rate for your jokes, um, you're doing well. Well, that's my, that's my theory anyway. Well, I, I think... 50% is awesome. <laughs> if they laugh once, I'm over the moon. Yeah. And, um, well, hopefully that's not when you walk in the room, Mark. <laughs> I'll, I'll take anything, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get off snake bite and snake treatment of um, injured snakes and let's jump on to a couple of news stories. I'm going to whip through a couple of um, quick ones here, Mark. I'm going to take number two one of the news stories and that is what should you do with your dog's poop and this is from our typical um, resource the mother nature network mark and it just has a bit little bit of a rundown of 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 suggesting we need to think about what we're going to do when we're taking our dog for the walk 
and they're doing a poo and we're deciding what to do with it. Do we pick it up with bags? Do we use the supposed biodegradable bags? And I think you know as well as I do, Mark, but the, the bags are labelled as biodegradable. Some of them, yeah, they're biodegradable, but it might take 100 years for that that biodegradable one to biodegrade. Um, so deciding should we put them in bags or should we put them in um should we put them in paper bags, Mark? Um, and then what do you do with them once you've got them in the bag? Do you bury them? Do you compost them? Um, where are you going to put them? And the one that I don't like, and I've never really done it, is the flushing down the toilet thing. And I know some people are really adamant that you should flush your dog's poo down the toilet. Um, so what's your thoughts, Mark? Which method do you use when you're taking your dogs for a walk? And I must admit, Mark, Disclaimer here, um, and spoiler alert here, Mark. Um, when I take my two doggies for a walk, they've usually already done the poo in the backyard. <laughs> and what I do with it is I do a poo run at least once or t- twice a week. And it doesn't mean I pick up all the poo and go for a run around the block with it. I pick up the poo and I put it in a little compost heat at the back, which just sort of compost i don't use it um as in put it in the garden at all it's just this slowly degrading big compost heap of a dog poo mark and um, if they do do a poo on the walk that i take them on i must admit that i do not take bags with me and i just try and dig out a little hole and sort of scuff it into that hole so i'm a bad citizen as far as our local council says so what do you do (laughs) well we're pretty um lucky when we take ruby for a walk out um, shout out to Lake Macquarie City Council who actually supply um, some uh, um, a limited number and you can buy extra of the um, biodegradable bags the the, uh, um, the the because there is a range there's some that uh, you know obviously the bags that we get from Woolies um, or Coles from the supermarket they're um, they're plastic that's not going to break down for millions of years, um, whereas the the uh, the you know corn based ones, some of the uh, extracts of petrol that are made up into bags that are biodegradable, they still can take quite a few years to break down. But the high quality ones we get, um, and they go into um, uh, like we've got a special um, compostable. Bin. Um, the the uh, council keeps that stuff separate and processes it for you know I suppose use in the council garden. So um, we're pretty lucky in that way, Brendan. We can um, take advantage of uh, our wonderful local council, and, and they are helping us out. So I don't have to offend them. Um, but I tell you, excellent. So do they have that compost in bin or, or little collection sites in the parks do they mark how does that work how do you get the poop to the bin well you've got to carry it wherever you wherever you're going you've got to carry it but um uh, i bring it home we, the bin is at home and uh goes in there um but I, I think also we've looked into in our area the because i think different waste water you know uh, sewerage um the different uh, utilities that do the sewerage for us in different parts of the world have different expectations. And so some of them are happy to accept uh, um, excrement from animals other than humans. Um, and um, some facilities are not. They, uh, they're pretty keen not to have the, the um, sewerage system used to get rid of animal waste. So it is a big, it's a bit of a vexed question. And I don't know that there's any clear answer, Brendan. Yes, and the other thing that 
short article that we've prattled on for five minutes already, but is that they do, and that's an article from the USA, um, a particular dog doolier, um, which is a specific composting bin that helps break down the dog's poop better than um, just putting it in a normal compost um, bin. So they have got specific ones to help break down the dog poop properly, Mark. So, yeah, I don't know whether we've got those in Australia here. But, yeah, that's my first story, poo, Mark. What's your first story? Well, the first one I'm going to talk about, Brendan, um, is the eagles. And once again, this has got me a little bit confused. Um, This is a a story on the ABC about uh, wind farm monitors, um, which are to warn of the approaching wedge-tailed eagles in in a bid to prevent bird deaths. Now, around the world, um, one of the true issues with wind farms is the fact that they do um, migrating and uh, migrating birds and particularly because of the location they're set in often birds of prey um, uh, uh, can be injured or killed by the the um, uh, veins of the the um, the wind farm the, t- the uh, turbines um, and this is a proposal uh, in Tasmania at the Cattle Hill wind farm um, to set up a system where, uh, I suppose, a series of wide-range uh, uh, um, uh, lenses, uh, cameras, can wander around, search the sky, identify the birds, um, and um, uh, slow the turbines down to switch them off, essentially, to uh, allow the birds to pass unhindered. I, I don't know, Brendan, I just... Crikey! So I, 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 this is a. I've been down to Canberra where there's quite a lot of these uh, on the drive down to Canberra, and geez, I, I can't imagine them being shut down in just a few seconds at the, um, at the approach of a, um, of an eagle, and um, yeah, I I'll be very interested to see the results because I have my doubts that it's going to work quite as well as maybe people are expecting. Yes, and I see that they do state in that article the turbines do slow down fairly quickly within seconds and so there is time to shut down the turbines based on knowing the distance the bird is from the turbine. But, yeah, I'm sceptical as, as you are, Mark, in that yeah, supposedly it will detect the, the wedge-tailed eagles around about a kilometre away and then detect its flight um flight um not to, not just distance but um direction and um if it's still heading towards the turbine i think within about 600 meters or so they decide to send a signal to the turbine to turn it off but yeah they're pretty bloody big these turbines aren't they and i'm surprised i'd be surprised if they if they turn off in time they could slow them down that quickly mark and how do you know the bird's going to um not do a bit of a roundabout flight mark and and sort of and just go in a straight line um or it's going to do a bit of a roundabout or it's going to circle over the turbine if it sees something below the turbine it wants to eat mark they you know they they often uh, find a spot particularly a, a location where there's a, an updraft, a, a bit of a hill with the wind rushing up and rising up over it, and they might just stay there and soar, uh, circling around um, in the updraft. And they're exactly the sort of locations that um, that these wind turbines are in. So are they going to shut them down while ever the eagles are there? It's a, yeah. I'm not sure, Brendan. They've, I did notice that um, in Tasmania where there is a separate... 
um, you know, the the wedge-tailed eagle from Tasmania is considered a separate species and is considered considered vulnerable. Um, that uh, the electricity infrastructure TAS Network's annual report showed that twenty nine eagles were killed in the uh, 2017-2018 period, um, which was uh, um, a significant rise. Uh, in the previous year, there was only 12. Um, so I don't, yeah, I, I suppose if they can save a few, that's going to help. But, geez, 30 um, endangered eagles each year. And the other thing that's interesting, that was interesting to me about this is that there's a real focus on the birds of prey, but um, Tasmania's most endangered bird, the orange-bellied parrot, um, I've, I've got. Um, I don't. Well, I don't think they get a look in here, Brendan. I think they're just going to get boinked on the head if they shoot over from Victoria to Tasmania and go too close to any of those uh, um, uh, uh, wind farms. Yes, we will wait and see how effective it is, Mark. And but I, I think I think they might be pulling the wool over some a few people's um, eyes with that one. I, I'm very sceptical about how it's going to work. Um, our last news story is going to be about a stunning winners of the acclaimed Siena International Photo Awards, and I think our, our good friend Doug sent us a link to this one, as he did with the wind farm story as well, Mark. And, gee, these, these photos are gobsmackingly good, aren't they, Mark? And we'll, we'll have a link to the photos in, at vetgurus.com. And, um, yeah, they both inspired buy me and depress me at the same <laughs> time, Mark, which were your favourite photos of the um, – they have about 19 of them, of the, the, the final winners there, Mark. Um, I've got it. The, the first one I'm wrapped in is the, um, is the sperm whales. Any photographs of sperm whales, um, they're just – they're enchanting. And I always had – when I was, a, um, I don't know, a younger person, I always had the idea that sperm whales had – that whole bulbous sort of front of their head was, um, you know, was a big, it was as wide as it was tall at the front, but it's not, it's very yes. blade-like. It's very um, narrow. It looks, you know, the the, the uh, profile certainly fits with the caricatures we see in, um, in uh, uh, mainstream media, in cartoons and whatnot. But um, when you look at them from the front, they look completely different to what you are, uh, would um, initially expect what I initially expected as a young person. Yes, it is. They all are. It's a fantastic world. They all are fantastic photos, aren't they, Mark? A couple of ones that stood out for me are the the one of the chameleon um, about to capture the dragonfly. I just thought that one was um, amazing, and and just the that one of the boy. Um, um, which which won the award a remarkable award? It was a category for a, a boy, young boy cradling a cow in Malaysia, and and um, oh, just beautifully framed and just just lovely. But they're all they're all amazing, aren't they, Mark? So I encourage all our listeners, and also the the, the leopards with, with they've stored their kill in the tree there. Um, Hanging there upside down, they're just oh, they're amazing. The frog with the ants, um, they're they're um, yeah, they're all great. And you know, like, our favourite <laughs> our favourites are always going to be the natural history, the animals and plant based ones. But uh, the Siena International Photo Awards also uh, celebrate landscapes and architectural classes, um, and even those ones are just they're just awesome. Um, so, yep, commend everyone to have a good look at those images. And um, and uh, 
and the fa- and the, the, and one of those is that the overall winning image of the whole competition was the um, the photograph of the boy in Bangladesh there, and um, yeah, it's pretty heart wrenching that one. It's fantastic. So yeah, so encourage everybody to have a bit of a look at them, and, and encourages me to get out there again, Mark, and try and take some photos that are only one hundredth of as good as those. But I. One of these days, I'm looking forward to seeing a picture of yours in these competitions, Mark, because I'm sure. Which reminds me, have you sent off the prize-winning photo to our? I'm embarrassed to admit that I have not yet. That'll have to be my job straight after I finish here, Brendan. Now you've reminded me. You must. You must. Well, let's jump into the main story or the main topic this week, Mark, and we are going to talk about the basics of nutrition for our little avian friends, aren't we, Mark? So we're going to go through a, a quick fire rundown of what we think are that some of the key points with nutrition in birds obviously it's a huge topic there mark but it's mainly aimed at the our vets and our technician nurses that um, don't deal with our little feathered friends are very often mark so let's kick it off with let's get back to basics marks what are the how do you sort of approach it if you had a new graduate for instance who's saying look what do i advise clients to feed birds well the first thing to say is <laughs> Is that we, and I've had to do this, so I know what I would say. Um, and the key thing is not, first of all, is not to be frustrated because you're going to be saying it. If you're a veterinarian or a, a veterinary support person, uh, one of the nurses or techs, and you do deal with people who have birds, you're going to be repeating this story endlessly uh, because um, it is without a doubt the most uh, important difference you can make to the quality of life, the longevity of um, our feathered friends is to um, up the standard of nutrition. And I always emphasise that we don't have it um, completely down pat yet. We don't have the, you know, the... um, the things that we suggest are still, I would still suggest they're not absolutely perfect. Um, but, um, you know, I think there's some basic principles we can adopt um, that are going to um, improve those birds' quality of life quite dramatically. So what do I suggest that um, that our uh, um, uh, new graduate suggests to the client who comes in with their, you know, they're really proud, they've um, uh, bought their first, uh, they've got their first, they've acquired their f- first bird and um, and it's a relatively young bird, recently weaned. Um, sometimes it's been hand-reared um, and they're coming in to have the health check and to get some basic husbandry. What do people say? Well, I think the f- take-home message, um, most of the birds that people are going to acquire the the uh, passerines or the um, citizens, the um, the finches and canaries, or um, the various forms of parrots. Um, they the first thing to say to them is do not, do not just feed them seeds. Um, seed diets on their own. Uh, um, many of our uh, parrots and canaries will survive for long, long periods of time on these diets, but they will get into trouble, Brendan. So um, it's really important that the, um, that uh, we make a little bit of, and particularly when the, if someone acquires a bird when they're young, it's good to um, uh, take advantage of um, them not being fixed in habits and uh, encourage them to uh, expand the diet beyond that uh, traditional um, seed diet that's been 
um, sort of the mainstay of keeping birds in captivity over, uh, over the last hundred years. And it's frustrating, isn't it? I think that's the same situation worldwide, isn't it, where the, the client comes in and says, oh, I'm feeding my bird on a complete diet. It says complete. Um, I've got this box of seed that I've bought at the um, pet shop or the supermarket, and it says complete bird food. And it's even got a picture of my bird on the front, Mark. Um, so why is not that a complete diet is what their client would then say to me. And then it's starting to work through the process of trying to one convince them sometimes, isn't it, um, that perhaps it isn't the ideal diet for your little, little friend there. And um, I often sort of go back to then what I always do with most of the species is, is try and relate it back to, hey, what would you think this bird would feed on in the wild and then slowly work around from there, Mark. Do you sort of approach it like that with some of the clients, especially the ones where they say, no, I'm, I'm going to stick with this diet because it's a complete, you know, box of cereal for my um, bird to feed him Look, at home. You've said exactly the same. So you've enunciated the problems that we see, that there are, a, um, you know, a group of people who um, – uh, have a bit of an idea and a wide-eyed and accepting of um, of uh, direction, instruction, education. But there's a small group of people who, you know, my grandfather fed his galah nothing but sunflower seeds and it lived till it was 90. Um, her, her mum and dad fed the budgerigars just budgerigar seed and I'm, I'm going to feed them seed. That's a complete diet. Um, but we know that um, while there are exceptions and George Burns um, smoked cigars till he was uh, in his 90s, but um, on across the whole population, um, our birds will be far less healthy and will live shorter and less happy lives if they are fed predominantly seed. And referring back to um, their wild diet as a starting point, um, and there is a fair bit of information about uh, um, the ecology and the cycles and the, feed, the seeds that various birds feed on in the wild. Um, it is completely different to the stuff that's in the boxes that are sold through the supermarkets and pet stores, Brendan. So let's get back to basics then, Mark. So you've got that client in front of you and they have bring in one of the commonly kept parrots, for instance. What would you be saying to the clients, um, you're running behind as usual as in usual. consultations and you, you have five minutes to quickly run through the basics and, and try and drum a little bit of that into the into the client as far as this is what I recommend feeding um, your little parrot that you have in front of us. Well, the pressure Go. you've, you've <laughs> exercised in this question is, is a real one and it's, it adds to um, our frustration um, that – uh, that we often are caught in a situation where we have a great long story to explain, but we just don't have the time to do it. So can I just do a little sing out for handouts in this instance? Um, it is a great thing to have the fine detail of the information so you can go, look, seeds are bad. Your bird will live, um, uh, you know, a quarter the length on average, its normal life, and it will have complications through the last part of its life that, you know, associated with the high energy of the seed diet. So you've got to change that. Um, try and introduce a wide variety of um, 
uh, vegetables. There are a number of commercial pellets. While your bird's young, trial these things and uh, and expand its diet um, so that it's not just stuck on the high energy seeds um, with a few added sweet fruits that uh, only really add another form of um, of uh, of sugar fructose instead of the starches and stuff that are in seeds. Absolutely. And I think um, we love to give lots of handouts as well. And it's always good to have like a one or a two page summary of things. And we do that with the birds as well as the mammals and the reptiles as well. And they've got that to take home. And yeah, they're often full of all sorts of things that we've, we've mentioned in the consultation, whether we're in a rush or not. And they get home and I think, (laughs) <laughs> what did he say? Um, so having that in front of them is, is fantastic. And um, also visually you can then show them some of those products as well. So if we drill down a little bit, Mark, so you mentioned about get them off the seed diet so we go on to a pelleted food. So what are you going to say to them about the pelleted food? You know, what sorts of pelleted food? What options have we got? Uh, let's perhaps if you name some of the brands that are recognised by the avian vets including yourself as being um, good quality and and how you're going to feed that and how well the, the there are an increasing number of brands that are now available around the world and in Australia where we're originating this podcast um, that we have had times here in Australia where various brands and the Harrisons one leaps to mind um, where they haven't been are consistently available they're imported and so sometimes there's issues with that import that means they can't be uh can't be available and um similarly there was an excellent product um uh, dr max bird foods um about uh seven or eight years ago um but for um a variety of reasons they were only on the market for a short period of time and they were no longer available um so you often we're using um, uh, the Fabers or um, particularly the Vetifarm products, uh, very, very good. Um, uh, but there's, there is a wide range and uh, people should look into um, the, uh, the various brands that are available in their pet stores or at their veterinary hospitals. The key thing I think about those, Brendan, is that I look for brands that have at least some... Um, specialization that if you're getting a brand of food or um, uh, uh, even pellets that is you know generically good for all birds um, that, that that's just not going to be true there are um, certain individual nutritional characteristics of each species which mean that the more that you can find a food that's tailored to um, to your species of bird, the less likely there would there is of um, going to be a problem. And one of the common ones we see is um, with our cockatiels that um, uh, the uh, for most birds, um, for most woodland birds, for example, rosellas and king parrots, we would switch them completely to pellets um, and then add a number of vegetables and activity foods around the edge. But for cockatiels, if we were to um, switch those birds to 100% pellets, um, then there is a slight increase in the rate because they're so um, uh, a much better quality nutrition. Um, we do see the higher protein content in the pelleted foods put some pressure on the kidneys of some a small percentage of our cockatiels. And so we like to um, like for them to still have maybe 20 or 30% of their diet um, as a uh, 
um, you know, small budgerigar canary mix. Um, we don't want them to get those parrot mixes, which are, uh, have corn and, and uh, sunflower seed in them. But um, just getting one that's uh, specifically for your type of bird is probably the first thing we'd say to people, Brendan. Yes, and one of the things I tend to say to clients with any of the products that we have in the clinic is the first thing I say is, look, here's an example of a product that you may feed your bird, your reptile, your your bunny, for instance, But um, the f- and then the second sentence would be, I don't care where you buy it from um, because you often you sometimes get the clients who are a little bit sceptical about the fact that you might be trying to just sell the product you have in your clinic. So um, I'm more than happy to say, look, I don't care what you, where you get this product from, but I think this one is a good one. Here's a couple of alternative ones, and I'd mention them as well. We'd possibly have them in our care sheets as well and say, look, gee, it would be good if you bought it from our clinic because it's helped support enough. But if you buy it from the big pet store, um, et cetera, then, then great, um, as long as we're getting the right nutrition into your animal. So I, I think it's important to to come across as not, not trying to sell, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say with that, that comment there, Mark. So how much do we feed our little cockatiel then of that 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 cockatiel food that you're offering them, That's an excellent question because it probably is the um, next most important thing about um, nutrition in birds is that we give them too much, Brendan. We just give them way, way too much. I know that, um, uh, you know, we've got lots of clients who will have maybe four or five um, uh, uh, feed dishes around the bird's cage um, and they will fill each one of those up you know, tip the old seed out and fill them back up each day. Um, And so the bird literally has a smorgasbord of excess. And I often tell the story of um, what would happen to, let's say we stick with cockatiels, what would happen to that bird in the wild would be that they'd wake up in the morning about six o'clock at sunrise, they'd preen and socialise for an hour. But then from about 7 to 11.30, um, they would forage they would look for food, Brendan. It would take all that time to find enough food to satisfy their caloric requirements. They'd have a rest for a couple of hours over lunchtime. Then from two o'clock till six-ish around dusk, they'd be foraging again before they fly up in the trees and, and roost for the night. So on any given day, that for their probably between seven and nine hours, they're looking for food. And during that time, they might only intake, your average cockatiel might only take in per day about 10 or 14 grams of, um, of food. Yet in captivity, we supply them with so much food that they can satisfy that caloric intake in about 15 minutes. And so not only does the process of feeding them seed hurt them directly nutritionally, but it also affects their psychology because they've... Their, their thought processes are keyed in to search for food. And when it's laid on uh, smorgasbord style, they, um, they, they've just got this an extra nine hours a day to uh, preen, to um, not move around and lay down body fat. And, um, and it, it definitely leads to behavioural problems. Absolutely. And it's, guess what? It's exactly what we've been talking about in previous podcasts with our mammals and our reptiles as well, isn't it, Mark? They're big fat blobs. They do nothing. They sit around and we just 
fill their feed bowl with food and uh, they get fat, they get lazy and they get bored and then we run into all sorts of problems. And I think birds are the extreme for that, aren't they, Mark? And I, I know there's some publications out there that, that mention what, what is the percentage that a bird will spend, you know, as you, as you mentioned, um, searching for food. It's anything from, what, 80 to 95% of its time? Yeah, is it something like time. that, Mark? Yep, yep. Yep. So we need to spend time hiding that food, environmental enrichment, giving them things to look, to find, to search for their food. So what what techniques and what sort of products do you recommend for doing that, for hiding and that food? I think food? that's um, – yeah, there's two quick things I'd say before um, the, uh, talk about the, the techniques. Um, the first one is that um, that it is really, really gratifying. Like it's a – Buzz when you see the birds behaving like birds and doing birdy things um, and um, and exercising their minds. Um, so I think I well I I and my clients report to me that they regularly get a great deal more um, satisfaction enjoyment out of spending time with their birds when they encourage them to forage and have that environmental enrichment. And the second thing I was going to say is that. I'll tell you a couple of things that we use, Brendan, but um, there is uh, uh, um, a lot of stuff that uh, you can get on the internet and the limit your ability to um, to entertain your bird um, that is only limited by your imagination. So we have uh, lots of people who, um, who do things like they get um, Banksia cones, for example, and they uh, will roll them in the pellets and they uh, get little bits of pellets wedged in the interstices of the um, little spots where the seeds come out of the Banksia cones and then they allow the birds to tear them apart to get out those little crumbs. They'll, um, similarly with Cassiarina nuts, they might set up a, a, a kitty litter tray with some aquarium gravel and put a teaspoon of uh, seed in that and mix it around so the birds have to shift the gravel around and, uh, um, and find the seed um, so that instead of just taking five or ten minutes to fill up their crop from the food bowl, it might take them an hour or two to get that food and... It's mentally stimulating. It uh, requires a certain physical effort, and the birds are happier and healthier for it. Absolutely. But we haven't mentioned how much to feed, Mark. So that client in front of you in that five-minute reply about what to feed my bird, and you've covered that in uh, 15 <laughs> minutes already, Mark, is how much do I feed him of this new pelleted mix and veggie um ad lib mix as well so Mark? the 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 answer to that isn't going to be uh just like a straight simple answer either it's um it is a little bit loaded by the answer is a little bit loaded by the fact that different birds do have different metabolisms male birds female birds different species so like our other species we do do like to do a little bit of a feedback loop we like to start somewhere but emphasize that that things might have to change given 
you know, each bird's individual metabolism, the brand of the pellets that's used, the amount of um, ancillary food, um, sprouts or greens or vegetables, or, uh, all those things will feed into how much you feed. But generally speaking, as a general guide, we're talking about something like um, uh, 20 grams for each 100 grams body weight of the bird. So if I have a 100-gram cockatiel, then I'm going to start with something of the order of a tablespoon, a level tablespoon, not a heaped one, um, of pellets as their sort of daily ration. And then the other thing about the feedback loop is that you need to weigh them. Like all of us who are trying to uh, um, get the best out of our diet, we need to be regularly weighed. Um, and if they're losing weight... Um, then upping the food a little bit is a good thing. But if they continue to lose weight, then that's a sign that uh, maybe they are dealing with an illness and they're metabolising some of that energy, fighting the disease. So that regular weigh-in is um, not only good for trying to judge whether the bird needs a little bit more food, but also um, can give us clues about their health, Brendan. Yes, my first comment to clients is, how much do you feed? And they'll just say, I don't know. I just fill up the bowl. How big's the bowl? Oh, it's a bird bowl, you know, so it must be the right amount to feed. And I, I think the key point, as you mentioned, is getting across, hey, you need to weigh or get a little measuring cup. I mean, our, our good friends at um, Oxpo Australia's, um, they have those little um, little scoops for um, how much to feed uh, of the pelleted feed for um, a rabbit or a guinea pig mark and I encourage the bird owners to do the same. Work out based on what species you have in front of you how much would be an adequate amount for that particular bird species and then relate it to, okay, you need to put a quarter of a cup or a fifth of a cup or one of these scoops or X amount of a percentage of a, a, a urine sample pot that you give to the client and say, that's how much you feed your bird per day, no more, no less, um, as well as the, the other um, brows and the, the vegetable matter and, and the grazing and the, and the products you're going to hide for it. Um, so I think it's a matter of, I try to keep it simple with the Mark, as far as trying to get across the fact, feed this amount, no more, no less, um, and this is physically how much to feed. Do you, do you um, ever do that well, with your clients? Everyone, like? yes. The short answer is yes. And it, you're exactly right that the more complicated you make it, the more likely it is that um, people won't do it. So it does have to be simple. But you just do have to be careful that um, um, I have had times where I've said, you know, level tablespoon and um, then the bird comes back uh, six months later and um, is... Uh, is 20% under body weight. So we do like to get people to just to pay attention to the, the uh, body weight as one of the indicators of how the nutrition is affecting their health and how anything else might be affecting their health. And with, so with the weighing of those birds, Mark, what's, how do you recommend clients weigh those their bird and how often? Well, I recommend that they um, get a nice set of kitchen scales. Um, uh, usually they can get them inexpensively from one of the, the uh, you know, um, uh, places like Big W, the supermarket, uh, Walmart or um, uh, um, Kmart. Usually about $30 you can get a high-quality um, gram or fraction of a gram measuring set of scales. 
you, they're good to pick the ones that you can remove the whey plate from the surface and then it's good to uh, just put a little perch on that whey plate Brendan um, and uh, reassemble it and um, and then uh, reward the bird for getting on this the uh, um, the perch the the uh, tea piece the branch whatever you set up on it um, and um, routinely do that once a week now um, if you've got a bird that's steadily losing weight I recommend doing it you know, I recommend to my clients that they need to be weighed more frequently. Um, but I think people can get a bit neurotic if they're um, they're weighing them, you know, every single day. Once a week is a good guide um, to see that they're just, you know, roughly within the the um the same weight range that they've been for the rest of their life, and there's been no dramatic change. Um, that gives us a good confidence that. Um, that they're being fed the right amount and that there's no other health issues ticking over. Yes, once a week, once a week. So anything else you'd like to say about the environmental enrichment, Mark? I know you've touched on it a or, or mentioned a reasonable amount of that. Any other tips or tricks about encouraging them to forage? There, their there is. I, I said before there is a, a large number of, um, of, you know, you can get ideas and even um, some commercial products on online. There's a, a number of acrylic uh, structures that you know are arranged like puzzles, uh, drawers, and whatnot that um, that uh, parents can learn to open or um, that encourage them to uh, use their um, ability, their their mental ability to find the food. I often find that um, some three things about those there's some birds that never get them that aren't able to figure out the problem there's other birds that figure them out really quickly and um and just open them in a couple of seconds so it's no challenge and a lot of those acrylic uh while they might not be able to damage the main structure there's often little bits that um some of the parrots will break and we've had to get some of the the uh you know the broken bits out of the crop um, where they, uh, once they've been broken, they can act as a foreign body. So we're often recommending that people look for natural, um, if they are going to buy things online, they look for naturally constructed things, things that are made out of um, uh, you know, natural wood and may have holes drilled in them or um, uh, various kebab designs that are made of natural uh, structures that the birds are unlikely to break in such a way that they're going to injure themselves. Yes, and I think that goes with the perches and the uh, furniture in the enclosure as well. Um, I, I usually recommend if it's a native Australian bird and here we are in Australia, um, get out there and just grab some branches and pop them in the enclosure there because we haven't really spoken about the setup of aviaries, Mark. We should talk about that um, with a future podcast, um, but it's relating it again back to the particular species. One thing we did skip, Mark, as you're just meant, um, going through that, little thought process you had there um, is that we haven't spoken about how we convert these birds from that seed diet to the pelleted food and there's a few different ways of doing that mark potentially one is going cold turkey and one is converting them slowly mixing it slowly over so what's your thoughts on which is the best me method to do it or does it depend on the bird species unsurprisingly it does depend a little bit on the bird species um, and and it 
And it is an advantage um, to have um, a good idea about what they're eating each day, how much they're eating does make it a little bit easier. Because if you just, cold turkey generally for most birds won't work. They just look at it like you're not going to, I'm not taking that, that's not food. Um, so generally you are trying some process of mixing the new pelleted food with um, the traditional food. Um, but if you give them, you know, say the bird's eating 20 grams, you give it uh, 20 grams of seed and you give it, mix it 50-50 with the pellets, um, then the bird's just going to eat the 20 grams of seeds and leave the pellets. Whereas if you mix 10 and 10, the first day um, the bird is going to eat the 10 grams of seed and by the afternoon will be a bit hungry and might play around with the pellets. After several days of that, they are not starving because they're still getting their um, seed, but they are much more likely to have a go at the pellets at that point. So that's an extra reason to get the uh, measuring cup out and know exactly how much you're feeding them, Brendan. Yes, and do you mix them together? Do you do sort of the, the Rissole method where you might get a little bit of water and, and moisten the, the seed and the pellet mix and, and roll them into a little ball there so they have to pick around the the, the, the pelleted type mix in order to get that seed? Definitely. That they if you can do things that, uh, first of all, stimulate the bird but um, also cause it to have to, you know, chew their way through um, the moistened uh, and often will... Um, you know, allow that, uh, mix the, the, the pelleted food up with some water, mix some seed in with it, um, allow it to dry, and it'll often dry, you know, like it's baked hard, um, and they will often be excellent little uh, um, cakes to um, stimulate them to uh, have a go. You've, the one thing you do have to be a little bit careful about whenever you wet the food is um, where we can leave the dry pelleted food and the seed in the cage for um, a reasonable time and change it on a daily basis the um, the if you wet stuff and leave it in the cage then you've always run the risk of mold and bacteria overgrowing and causing a problem for the bird so do you recommend that every day they clean out any uneaten food and just for I taste do, Brendan, it i think it's sort of I don't want to anthropomorphise too much, but this is one spot I think it's fairly reasonable to think that um, that um, we wouldn't do it for us, wouldn't do it for our dogs, um, certainly wouldn't be allowed to do it for our cats, um, and I don't recommend we do it for our birds either, that uh, they get fed what they're going to eat that day and then the food is taken away. I don't, leave, I re don't recommend leaving the food with them overnight um, and then they get their next meal in the next morning which, you know, that sort of mimics their diurnal cycle. They're not um, going for the food in the night and um, they're normally roosting and uh, that uh, begets a certain um, relaxation pattern. Um, so, yeah. That's a great idea. I must admit I don't recommend that to my birdie clients as far as taking the food away overnight. So it's something I'll be recommending in the future, Mark. Is there anything else you want to talk about with our little summary of nutrition of birds or the basics? Well, the only other thing birds? I thought that was appropriate was just to mention um, a couple of the sorts of um, plants because once we do start encouraging people to find, you know, um, foods other than the um, – the, the seeds, um, then sometimes they go a bit crazy, Brendan, and they just try, you know, every single thing they can um, they can locate, um, 
And often they think um, that just because a particular food is um, uh, good for um, for uh, humans, that it'll be fine if it's um, uh, left for the birds. And similarly, a lot of the household plants we have, um, they, are, you know, because we're asking people to get their birds out and um, let them sort of interact uh, with rather than be stuck in a cage. Um, I always mention particularly the avocados. Um, I love my avocados, Brendan, but um, we we probably, I would be saying that um, once uh, every two to four weeks we have a case of a bird that um, has been fed avocado that uh, suffers from the uh, the uh, toxin that is in some cultivars and is at some stages of growth um, that causes damage to the uh, heart muscle and causes the birds to go into acute cardiac failure. Um, and uh, they'll often end up with severe congestive heart failure even in only a few hours that is very difficult to treat, Brendan. So um, while we want them to have lots of varied foods, they should definitely steer clear of the avocado. Yes, so I think it's a good idea to have a bit of a list of foods that we recommend in that care sheet and just basic commonly found foods from the supermarket and the green grocer so that they can offer them so at least they know some basics and then if there's any queries about other foods including avocado that you encourage them to phone the clinic and say hey what about this particular um, vegetable or fruit should i um, offer this to my bird and you can say yes or no rather than guessing mark what's just before we close mark what's the do you have any um any any um ideas on some really strange weird and wonderful foods that people have been feeding their birds or um, that you can mention or is it <laughs> lots of crazy things that well i think could, that the uh, um, go on about for ages the thing that is always it, rather than the craziness of it it just I, I just despair sometimes when um you know uh human food in particular um uh people the birds the birds that become members of our family think of us as their flock and so they're interested in the foods that we're eating. But just because they're interested in it doesn't mean it's the right do, thing to do to give them. And and just the way that people will offer, you know, salty, fatty chips or um, pizza um, or whatever they're eating that the bird's interested in, it just amazes me that they they think that, um, that they're, you know, that that's... A good thing that it's going to be helpful for the bird's health so i think um so many of the you know foods for people that are unhealthy um still get offered to birds and that um you know the 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 fact that they only weigh uh, um, a thousandth of uh, the weight that we weigh means that um eating that food can can literally have uh, um, a thousand times more complicated um uh, Problem can lead to more complicated problems with their health. So I suppose that's that just pizza. My short answer is pizza. Yes. <laughs> Even if it's a vegetarian right. pizza, it's not, it not okay for a bird. Vegetarian. Is that what you're saying, Mark? So it's like the it's <laughs> It's like the uh, rabbit clients who who are quite confused when they when I when I look horrified when they say they're feeding bread. 
They're feeding bread to their rabbits and they'll say, oh, but it's multigrain bread. It's wholemeal multigrain bread. So what's wrong? <laughs> God. Well, I say, get out of here. Don't come back. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we better get out of here. Speaking of getting out of here and um, we will talk to you all next week and thanks for listening. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time we